Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. I am hosting this episode myself, and for some background on me, I am educated in computer science and have spent most of my career as a software developer, business analyst, and project manager. I am a passionate entrepreneur and enjoy working with creative technologies and in business development. In this episode, I chat with friend of the rainforest, Nicholas Luff, based out of London in the UK. Nicholas is an entrepreneur, thought leader, and investor supporting innovation and community throughout his international business travels. During one of his recent trips to Calgary, I had a chance to sit down with Nicholas and discuss how the innovation ecosystem in Alberta, and in Calgary specifically, could rival that of larger Canadian cities if we break down the silos and build better long-term relationships between startup founders and investors. Should you wish to contact Nicholas, you can do so through Twitter, at Nicholas Luff, or on LinkedIn. Both links will be included in the show notes for this episode. All right. Uh, thank you, Nicholas, for joining me. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So perhaps what we should do is give the audience a little background on who Nick is and kind of how you got to where you are today. Oh, uh, well, it depends on how far back you want me to start. But, uh, you know, so I, I was born in the UK, uh, came to Canada uh, when I was fairly young. I grew up in Canada. Essentially, I did my undergrad at, in Hamilton at McMaster University. And just after that, um, I had uh, the opportunity to work in in uh, the corporate world up in Ottawa and Ontario. And every time I would come out west, and this was in the mid-90s, just to visit friends and family, I had such an amazing time. And I'd go back to Ontario, and it just didn't feel as great. And slowly but surely, after about a dozen of these trips, I just said, look, I need to... I need to move. And uh, I just consciously made the decision back in 96 to move out west. And I've been a Western Canadian ever since. Nice. What, what was your undergraduate degree in? Uh, economics. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and so I, I studied that for my undergrad. And then I did my postgrad studies in the UK. It's a much longer story, but I, I spent uh, a lot more time in the UK over the years, partly because it made sense for my work but mostly that I really wanted to reconnect with my roots. I was born in that country and all my relatives live there and it would be just this great opportunity to, to stay there. And so while I was in London, I realized that there were some amazing programs, postgraduate programs in places like uh, Cambridge in the UK. And so that's where I ended up studying for my postgrad studies. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And then what, what was your career path like? Well, I, again, it's a much longer story, but I, you know, I think I started out as a very budding entrepreneur. I, I did a lot of stereotypical things that a lot of entrepreneurs that I know would reflect on. And, and, you know, for example, I remember running my own business at about uh, seven or eight years old uh, called Mr. Snowman. And Mr. Snowman was just a snow shoveling service. And I would go down the street and I would hand up my little business cards, and I would encourage my neighbors to help me generate income by shoveling snow. 
And, and it became so successful for me that I started to hire other people on the street, that is my friends, and subcontract them into shoveling snow. Uh, and it just became very successful for me in my own right that I started to get the sense of income generation. I wasn't, I wasn't raised in an, an, an overly wealthy family. We were, we were wealthy with love and happiness, but not necessarily with money. And once I recognized the sense of empowerment that I felt, being able to, uh, to tap into what I thought were my strengths, uh, I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't ignore it. So you've been, you did an other entrepreneurial, are, are you just? Yeah, I, I, over the years I dabbled with other things. And so, for example, I did, I did come to a point where I, I, I worked for Tim Hortons for about a year and a half. I was a shift manager at Tim Hortons. Uh, but I ended up leaving because it wasn't really fueling what I thought were my strengths or my, my aspirations. Uh, when I was 17, I was offered a co-op sort of an internship through high school. And this was just an opportunity for me to gain practical experience. And I sat down with the sort of the counselor who said, okay, well, what kind of co-op do you want? And that's when they, they just listed all the things that came out of my mouth. And I, I mentioned things like I loved marketing, I loved business. Um, I also dabbled a lot with computers at that time, mostly because when I was about, uh, I was about 10, I bought my first computer. I saved up all my money from Mr. Snowman and I bought this computer and it was an Atari computer back in the early eighties. And, and so it was a part of me. And so fast forward to this co-op and sitting down with the counselor and I had, uh, I had mentioned computers. I think at that time there was this perception that if I mentioned computers, that means that I spend my Friday nights dabbling in computers and taking it apart and putting it back together. That wasn't me. I was more fascinated by the communication of computers. I was more fascinated by the fact that I could, again, feel empowered and produce amazing uh, reports. I'd hand in essays using my Daisy Wheel printer when I was in grade six on Sir John A. MacDonald. And, and I just loved the fact that this brought me to a different level. So anyhow, we collected all of the, this information. The counselor came to me a couple of weeks later and said, I've got the right job for you and you just need to show up on Monday morning and this is the address. So I showed up Monday morning and I walked into the boss's office and he looked at me and he just, he didn't shake my hand. He just looked, looked at me and said, there's five systems out back, computer systems out back. We need you to build them by the end of the day and just let us know when you're done. And I, and I looked at him and I, I said, you know, I think maybe there's been a misunderstanding. This isn't really what I do. I know about computers, but I don't know the inside guts of a computer. And so to make a long story even shorter, I, I ended up making an agreement with him. And I hope my, my counselor isn't listening to this today. He agreed that he'd pay me $10 an hour to work on my co-op, which was forbidden. But he would also show me how to build computers. And that was at 17 one of the most transformational moments in my life because it had me appreciate computers in a different way than I had in the past. And it really tied into this entrepreneurial spirit and starting to recognize this can be a tremendous business opportunity. And it also allows me to fall into the sense of flow. And I'd be happy to get into my, my thoughts around flow, but it, I, I would just get lost in these things where I, 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 I just feel this adrenaline rush and I build these systems. And then over time, 
I started to answer the phones at the same store. So again, I'm, I'm 17. I've got acne all over my face. And, and, but I, I've got a deeper voice. And when people would come into the shop and if there was no other salesperson around, I'd walk up to them and they wouldn't give me the time of day because I didn't look the part. However, what I realized is that if I answered the phone and, and none of the salespeople at the time liked to answer the phone, if I answered the phone, I could actually have conversations and deep engagement with potential customers so that when they came in, they might be initially alarmed to see this acne 17-year-old, but they also knew that there was a bit of trust that had been developed through the, te the telephone conversation, and I actually knew what I was talking about. So I transcended into sales, and I think that's when, to be honest, you know, I, I remember that year when I was 18, just before university, and I made more money in a given year than my dad did. <laughs> and, and so I knew that I was on the right path, but I also knew that post-secondary education was an important component of that, of that path. Excellent. Excellent. And so, um, fast forward a little bit, you've had probably, you probably built a pretty decent career in sales. And now you're at the point where you're traveling all over the world and you're doing investment in other companies. And so maybe talk a little bit about that. How's, yeah. how's that working out? Well, if I fast forward to just after studying at McMaster, uh, in fact, during the summers, I was lucky enough to work for big corporations because I realized that I could do some things as a result of this, this corporate retail experience in selling computers and building computers. Uh, so much so that it's another story, but I, I, I had my first retail computer shop during university. It failed miserably after about a year, learned a heck of a lot of lessons in the process. But I, it was at that point that I realized that I needed to get some corporate experience. I really need to appreciate larger scale operations. I need to better appreciate project management, program management, being able to tie in these things that I was learning as part of economics with the practical experiences of how do you, how do you build deliverables? How do you, how do you manage time and, and, and completing those deliverables and all these other components that I think that even to this day, corporates are an incredible learning space for sure for individuals but having said that i i recognized around 1999 and by this point i was working in vancouver really interesting corporation they were dealing with the next generation hydrogen fuel cells that would be helped with the fuel cars most people that i worked with were millionaires on paper because of how this corporation had grown by leaps and bounds but amongst all these amazing things, I just wasn't that happy going day in, day out into a concrete building. And for me and my sense of loyalty, I, I would show up at seven in the morning and I would stay until late at night. It was hard to have a social life, much less a, a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And so I, I knew I needed to pivot. And I knew I needed to reconnect with some of my entrepreneurial spirit that was so clearly shown in my early days. And so that's when in 1999, I woke up one day, I put my penguin suit on, I went to work, and I quit my job. And it was the most terrifying and exhilarating day of my life. I bet. And you didn't know at that point what you were going to do next? No clue. Oh, no clue. Gutsy. No clue. I, but I knew that I had tools. Okay. I had tools that I learned from the corporate experience. I knew I had the sense of spirit that was 
entrepreneurial. And in my mind, it was somewhat undeniable. It's just how do I fit that all together to make that happen on a consistent basis? I also knew that I had this sense of passion that I believed and was raised to think that we have a responsibility to leave this planet in a better condition than when we had first arrived. And I'm not talking necessarily about the environment. I'm not talking about um, social, social good. I'm just thinking about us as human beings. We might tap into those layers of what we now call sustainability. But that was so integral to me, this feeling, this mindset that we need to be more responsible for the way in which we evolve as a community, a global community. For sure. For sure. So what did you do next? <laughs> so, so, so classic me, I, I sucked myself into the deep end. I ended up uh, finding a, a contract to work in West Africa. I worked with uh, a multilateral NG, NGO relationship, multilateral, by the way, sort of the UN system. And I had this great contract to be able to uh, work with people on the ground in ways that I knew I could. And again, I found myself, given my project management background in the corporate world, as well as my entrepreneurial spirit, to be able to roll up my sleeves and then work in those spaces. What I didn't realize is that Sierra Leone, where I was, was a war-torn country. They were just in the, in, in the fringes of a peace agreement with the rebel force that had invaded the capital city, Freetown. I didn't know anything about this. I, I, I had never been to uh, a, a country like that. This was my first experience in Africa. I had never been to a refugee camp. I'd never worked with uh, individuals in that capacity. Certainly never seen a child soldier, any of these things that were so prevalent in Freetown. But it, it was me throwing myself into the deep end just to see if I could swim. And that's one of the qualities that I believe is integral to that sense of entrepreneurial spirit. Excellent, excellent. And uh, is that kind of what spawned your world travels? Like, Yeah, I, I started to continue with different projects, uh, not just in Africa, but in other, other places. Uh, spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, for example. And as I was building projects and partnerships, so just imagine that if you needed to deliver an initiative to improve the quality of, uh, of education uh, in a particular country, the solution really should be to engage the private sector and the government, perhaps again, multilaterals like the UN, corporates, uh, the World Bank, et cetera, et cetera, all these different actors that would typically work in those spaces. If you can get them to partner together and to make use of their limited resources, the outcomes are typically that much stronger because you can use have access to more resources than you would otherwise if you just went it alone. Right. So, so this notion of building partnerships became uh, an integral component of what I did. And so this is the early 2000s. But while I was doing this, I recognized how many opportunities there are for be people to build business opportunities in order to deliver those services. That is, let's say, improve education. Or, you know, I, I, I would... I live in a village, let's say, uh, and I'd frequent one of the local restaurants. I'd go there for breakfast or for lunch, and I'd really gain these deep relationships with the owners 
but I'd also be able to understand their pain points. And I just started to think to myself, well, how can I, how can I support them? How can I find ways to deal with this? And I think that's when, again, my entrepreneurial spirit started to roll up the sleeves. And, and, and even on my off hours away from my paid work, I would work with these local entrepreneurs to be able to enhance where they, I think they should be. Right. Because sometimes we often forget in Western nations how much opportunity we have for free. That is, we don't have to work that hard to get an opportunity. Whereas you look in a lot of emerging nations, some people call them third world countries, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, you may seriously lack opportunity. So I saw this, this infusion of my entrepreneurial spirit with the locals as an opportunity to raise, raise us up together in ways that was mutually rewarding. So do you, when, I'm going to take a, a guess here, but when you see a problem and a, and, and a possible solution or whatever, you're, it sounds like you'd be more focused on that than how you could turn it into money. But it sounds like you may have a little bit of a talent or a knack to find a way to make money work with that as well. Is that fair? I, I think so. And I appreciate you saying that. For me, what I started to realize is that we have to build infrastructure to be able to support emergent business. That's so crucial to supporting entrepreneurs, especially early, early entrepreneurs. People who are starting out in life may not have that, that great a network, may not have that much access to resource. How can we build the infrastructure that really starts to support their growth? And so uh, in the early 2000s, I received a contract to go to the Philippines. When I was in the Philippines, I, I delivered an assessment. An assessment it was in the south of the Philippines, and it was to try to, to determine what were the talents and the strengths of the business community in that region and how can they sh shift from a very troubling situation? Like it's another story entirely. It's a podcast in itself, but they were really struggling to, to stay competitive economically within the Philippines because of a lot of turmoil and civil unrest that had, that had occurred in that region. And yet they had amazing academic institutions. They had a great business community in, in very practical terms. Uh, they had support through the national and local government, but they couldn't put all the pieces together in a collaborative way that supports the kind of infrastructure that, that shifts or transforms them into a much more richer place. It's really just about using their limited resources as best as possible. And I started to see this trend. And most notably, I'd come back to Canada and I'd, I'd see the same thing happening here. As I, as I would in a place like the Philippines. And so as I, as I did this and I worked on these collaborative initiatives that helped to build capacity infrastructure within the business community in these regions and, and many others, I saw opportunities to invest. So I could actually put my money where my mouth is and say, listen, I believe in you or I believe in your team enough that I know that just a little bit of resource is going to very, be a very, go a very long way to you in becoming successful. And even at that time, I didn't call that an angel investor, but that's what it felt like. And so, again, every time I would come back after my travels, and I've worked uh, across about five different continents, about a dozen countries, and in my travels, I recognized 
how many strengths they have that just need to be realized. And then I'd come back to Canada and I'd say, see the same thing here, but just slightly different. And so I spent more and more time working in areas like Toronto and in Vancouver. I, I spent some time in Calgary as well, trying to actualize the, the collaborative approach for infrastructure building. However, I recognized in terms of opportunity that was way more interesting things going on in London or in parts of Europe than there were in North America. We just, at that time, and this was about 10 years ago, hadn't quite figured out the collaborative approach. Okay. Which is ironic uh, for many reasons, but that was the reality. So that's when I shifted. I, I moved to London. As I left Vancouver and I moved to London. And I had this amazing experience of being able to work on the cutting edge of innovation when it came into came to this collaborative partnership approach for infrastructure building. Interesting. Where I would be able to, again, invest in opportunities that I felt were worth investing or worth supporting because they, they spoke to me on so many different levels. Again, getting back to my earlier point, if I saw a startup that was struggling somewhat, but they had this vision of a future that had less to do with money and more to do with how can we transform, how can we disrupt how can we make this planet, this crazy planet of ours, a better place? That's when I need to find ways to support them, no matter what it takes. Because to perhaps answer your question in a long way, money for, for an entrepreneur, if you want money to be your primary driver, that's your business. And I completely respect that. And if that's, that's, that's the choice that you want, no problem. However, I see this transformative approach with regards to entrepreneurialism when you make sure that money isn't your primary driver, everybody likes money. Don't get me wrong. And I'm, I, I've had the good fortune of being able to see a lot of layers of success in my years. But at the end of the day, if you look at a lot of folks, you know, I'll, I'll throw out the Elon Musks of the world, so to speak. Do you really think that Elon Musk is doing what he's doing because he wants to make a crap load of money? No, I don't think so. Just not by his nature, the way he's done things, the things yeah. that he's thrown money at, uh, He's playing the long game, and exactly. it sounds like you're exactly. playing the long game as well. I'm trying to, and I and I think that what we're starting to see is an emergent new style of entrepreneur that's making sure that they don't put the cart in front of the horse. Because I think when you get so lost in income generation or just making a lot of money, sometimes all these other externalities, they can get in the way, and sometimes those externalities are the ones that really transform communities, societies, countries, if not the world. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. So I want to go back to one thing that you were saying about London or the UK and Europe in general. And you were saying that there was a lot of collaboration and we met at the rainforest. Yeah. And so you've been coming through Calgary quite a bit and spending time visiting the rainforest. You, yeah. you were at the summit. Um, you've, you've got a lot to say about innovation, um, collaboration, that kind of thing. So I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on Alberta in general as an innovation ecosystem, where you see us kind of heading and maybe perhaps a little bit of tidbit of, of your thoughts on what we still need to improve to make that work even better? Because you're probably going to agree with me that things are 
getting a lot better right now and places like the rainforest have made a massive difference in the way people are collaborating, providing that collision space. Can I ask you to touch on that a bit? Yeah, sure. So let me just back up a little bit and say at the time I was, you know, enjoying my life in in London. Uh, However, I really missed the mountain, really missed Canadian culture. And it was this conundrum because I, I loved so many elements and I still do with London. And, and I think that that will have that, that I'll feel that way forever. However, I needed to reconnect with Canada in some way, shape or form. And I wasn't quite sure what that meant, but I knew that I needed to further explore that. And, and of course, with black Brexit looming the way that it is, uh, it, it just becomes even more of an impetus to, to start looking in those ways. So I, I was chatting with a few, few friends in Calgary. And we're just saying, Nick, you know, you've got to check out what's going on here. We're just on the precipice of something big. And I, I, I do a little bit of research. I better understand what's happening in Calgary. And I just think, how is that even possible? Because what I'm hearing from my friends and colleagues that I trust is very different than what I'm reading in the news and I'm perceiving on a variety of different online resources. So, so, so there has to be a truth in there somewhere. I just need to better understand what that is. And because of my, my previous time in Calgary, I, I really do, I love this place. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful community. It, I often joke with people, and this is an absolute comment, a compliment is, is that Calgary is a town that thinks it's a city. And there's this community spirit here that's really unique. And I see in very few places in the places where I've worked. So I started to, plan these reconnaissance missions. I came out here last year at the same time. I, I spoke at, a, at an event and I just started to listen to people, just trying to get a sense of what the pulse is around here. I was invited to participate in a reinforced meeting and uh, I, I saw this wonderful engagement of people, like-minded souls that really wanted to move this forward. And, and so that really spoke to me too. And again, I saw this community spirit in all of my my social experiences here. So I I, I meet up with friends and 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 they would meet up with friends who happen to be at the same location and 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 there was just this sort of rippling effect where the next thing you have no you had this impromptu party in a in a in a place that's that's community and I think about the flood that you folks had a number of years ago, however unfortunate that was. If it wasn't for the community spirit that exists here, don't think that you'd be able to overcome the way that you so clearly have. I think I was just trying to understand, is that a, is that on a personal experience? Is community here a personal thing or is it a professional thing or is it both? Because if you have the convergence of building community from a personal level as well as a professional level, that is the Shangri-La. That's the place that I think every, every place in the world needs to get to. And so as I started to unpack the sense of community here, I found that there was this, almost this conundrum in itself where they're great organizations, great events. However, they tended to be built in silos. You know, they, so there was this great event happening uh, one day and another great event happening on this day. And I didn't tend to see the same people hanging out at these different events. And I'd meet other folks and I'd say, hey, do you know this person or that person? They'd say, no, no, I don't. 
And yet we're all talking about the startup ecosystem here. So this was a bit of a flag for me, if, I, if I'm really honest, of getting a sense of why is it that a city like Calgary that has such a vibrant community spirit is building these all these different silos? What do we need to do to be able to move beyond those silos? And I think from my experiences, certainly in the UK, if not in many of the other places of the world where I've, I've focused on infrastructure capacity building, building those ecosystems, I think... One of the biggest parts of the answer to that is we need to find a collaborative approach to building the ecosystem that Calgary deserves. That we need to find some ways of tapping into that community spirit that's so blatantly obvious here and extending that into our professional circles. We need to be able to go that much further in extending a handshake to someone that you wouldn't otherwise meet simply because it's in the best interest of the, of the community. That's how you accelerate startup ecosystems. And rainforests, I think, go very far away in certain certain approaches. So, for example, uh, I've, I've read the book. I've even read the uh, the, the supplement that, that talks about uh, how you actually build ecosystems. And I think that I think that that's an integral component of building this infrastructure. But it's only one component. So, how do we make sure that we complement that with all these other things through community building? so that we're all successful. That makes a lot of sense. I think that we as, as, as Alberta with our volunteer spirit and our, um, our community spirit, I think you're right. It's, it's sort of there. It's, it's like somebody just needs to make it connect or, or bring it to the next level. So I like the way the rainforest is, is going along and I, and they're very focused right now on initiatives. So yeah. instead of all talk, no action, there's a lot of talk and now some actions, yeah. which I think is, is great. And so understanding where that's going to carry forward. I mean, this podcast is one of the initiatives where, you know, we were, a few of us were talking about how there's all these really interesting people at the rainforest. And for those who haven't been to the rainforest and might be listening to this, you you go to the rainforest for the very first time and you stand up at the front and you introduce yourself for 30 seconds. And then everybody's sitting in the audience is like, Oh, I got to talk to that person. And yeah. in that, that's kind of one of the most valuable parts. But once that person is no longer standing at the front at the next meeting, they're just in the audience. You have no idea who's sitting around you. And so yeah. it's how do you, how do you figure out who you should be talking to and what kind of relationships are going to be beneficial, not only to you, but to them from, for knowing you and part of the rainforest, as you know, is giving back. Yeah. And so, um, with, with initiatives like this podcast, it's like, let's, let's start taking these people in the rainforest and giving you their full story, telling you all about who they are and what they're doing yeah. so that when you're listening to that podcast, you're like, Oh, that person I really need to talk to because I bet you I could help them. Or uh, there's this person I need to introduce them to, or boy, would they be a great mentor to help me figure out what's going on with this problem that I'm having, yep. right? And so there's going to be, uh, in, in the near future here, there's going to be a new website, there's going to be some new initiatives, some new, um, there's a, a, Debbie's working on a, a getting together a bunch of the investment community and yep. talking a little bit about that, yep. which I know you, you're likely going to be a part of. So there's, I, I feel like, like you said, when you first commented was it feels like we're just on the cusp on just on the edge of something major, really clicking. I, I agree. I think, I think the big question in my mind is 
how much of that needs to be organic versus intentional? That is, how do we how do we go beyond just bringing people into a room and having a conversation? How do we how do we plant seeds in the rainforest? Or how do we make sure that we just don't have a whole bunch of sequoia trees when really what we need is a wide diversity of different trees? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I tend to be someone who's very good at talking about the elephant in the room. And I think one of the elephants in, in the lunch without lunch approach is the fact that we, we're still learning to find the diversity, the rich diversity necessary to build that rainforest. And right now we're just getting a certain type of individual. So every time I go to the rainforest, I'd say 90% of the people that I meet are young or, or, or sort of at, at, at a new agent stage of their career where maybe they've pivoted after oil and gas, but they're looking for opportunity. That's essentially what they're doing. How can we bring in other individuals that are willing to tap into those opportunities and to support them? It just again giving back to the, the that sense of rainforest social contract. I did. I have met a few investors, let's say, in the rainforest lunch without lunch, but they're really few and far between. And more importantly, my experiences show that they come once and then they don't come again. So why is that? Why 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 can't we develop or, or how do we better develop a greater sense of commitment? In the same way that, uh, you know, let's say Brad, Brad Zumwalt's or Jim Gibson and, and others try their darndest to consistently show up at these meetings mm-hmm. because they believe in this. They feel passionate about it and they're trying to demonstrate leadership, which I think is, is great. We need to get more of that energy to complement all the other folks that are, that are in the room on a consistent basis. Second to that, we need to look at how do we create those sparks or how do we, how do we seed in the rainforest and how do we actively nurture those seeds so that they can grow into something vibrant? And I think that we're partly getting there. We just need to make sure that we understand what else we need to do to, to get there. I, as an example, I, I, I think it's amazing every week there seems to be so many new people coming in. And yet there's only about 100 people that show up to the, to the event, which, by the way, is great. I think 100 people is, is impressive. But if you have a large proportion of them being new, why is it that we don't have 200 or 300 people consistently coming in to these meetings every week? Have we looked at that? Have we, have we, have we recognized the issue of retention? And what are some of the key steps that we can impose or encourage to be able to to get people to come back again and again and again. Those are the important factors in my mind, and certainly the work that I do, that's going to be integral to getting to that next step. And to be quite honest, if there's a scorecard every year with the rainforest, which I know there is, and and if we're finding ourselves lacking in certain areas, what are some of the ways that we can find solutions that have a very clear personality of, of Calgary, you know, that, that, so, for example, how do we how do we harness this amazing community spirit that exists here that's really unique to further propel the rainforest into where it deserves to be? I think the, the other issue that I see here, just in a, as an observer, and I could I could ramble on about investors and startups, and 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 you know maybe there's another time for us to do that. However, 
one of the things that I really observe here is is just this sense of of connection, of trying to connect the dots uh, of different events, different initiatives because of the silos that I was describing earlier. So all of a sudden, I'll find out about an event at the last minute or an event that happened two days ago. And what that tells me is that either I'm not connected into, fully connected into the, the whole community, or there's a challenge in the community, that's the startup community, to be able to cohesively or collaboratively promote different events. Right. Uh, that's dangerous. That's that will stifle development around here. And I, I, I think that if you only reach out to certain other cities in the world that have, that have built similar ecosystems, I think Austin would be a good example of that. London certainly a good example. London is an amazing example of engaging the private sector in the development of the startup ecosystem. That's that's a podcast in itself. But what I'm trying to suggest is. We need to look at these different layers, understand why they are, why they are, look at what our strengths are, our natural, natural talents that are, exist here, and how can we better utilize those talents to get to that next level of the ecosystem, whether that's through the rainforest in conjunction with the rainforest, whether that's through creative destruction labs, or whether that's through Zinc Ventures or whether that's through Platform or, or any of these different organizations. I think that if, quite honestly, if I spend more time in Calgary, that would have to be a non-negotiable. We need to find a way to play better in the same sandbox mm -hmm. because all of these amazing organizations that are somewhat siloed, they have to find a way to collaboratively work more cohesively than they have in the past. And I, and again, I have a lot to say about that in, in itself. Yeah, I hear you. Um, that silo concept is is a difficult nut to crack, and I think, for example, if you there's there's some AI meetups and things like that in Calgary. Yeah. Well, everybody who's interested in AI goes to the AI meetup, but really they actually should be colliding with people who are outside of their little Huge. silo, right? Huge. And so, how do you get people who are not necessarily interested in AI to attend? an event, an AI event, or have the AI people attend an event that's not an AI event. Yeah. And I think that's probably, if we could crack that nut and figure that one out, um, I, I tell people all the time, when I go to the rainforest, one of the things that I learned a couple of years ago, at least uh, with networking in general, is I'm not trying always to connect with the person that I need to connect with. I'm trying to connect with the person in front of me or beside me. Uh, or, or the person that's walking by. Yeah. Because I honestly believe that every human being is fascinating and interesting and I'm curious about them. Yeah. And too. so I'll shake someone's hand and get to know them just because they're there in front of me type thing. Yeah. And I've met the most amazing people that I never would have, you know, even talked to if I was focused on a task or trying to accomplish a goal. It's literally about meeting people. And when you do that, you wouldn't believe, oh, you would be, you would, of all people, believe um, the kind of connectivity and the kind of collisions that happen from that. Because yeah. they're like, oh, well, you know what? I actually know this person who uh, actually his sister is this person who could help yeah. you or whatever. And so you get these crazy network connections that you never could have imagined in a million years. Yeah. And I think from from the investment perspective and the startup perspective, 
my big problem with startups in general, and I don't want to spin this off onto a total tangent, is startups do everything themselves until they need money and then they go out and try and find investors to help them. No, 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 no. One of the first things you should do when you start a business is find people to be on your advisory board and find people to help mentor you and help get you along the right road so you don't make all those mistakes in the beginning. And then at that point where you're like, I think we got some traction here. I think I think we 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 should start looking for some funding. Those investments pe- investing people have been with you the whole time and they're likely going to be giving you some advice or a check potentially even because they've been there the whole time and they've had an influence on getting you to where you are. Yeah. So uh, if I had any advice to any to anyone who was a startup it would be like get off your butt right now, get to know some people who are not going to give you money right now and build those relationships because, you know, as Jordan Harbinger says on his podcast, dig the well before you're thirsty, build these relationships long before you need them. Yeah. Because I I think that that will serve you and and that will also give you a a sense of whether that potential investor is a good fit or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I think, again, I, I, it's a topic for a, a separate conversation, but I think that, that right now, Calgary is struggling in the startup community and being able to access resources, uh, one of which is funds, obviously. And what we tend to do here in Calgary is, just as you say, we reach out to, to what we think are investors at a very late stage. It's too late in some ways because they haven't had a chance to get to know us from anyone else. And how can they make an effective decision? And a lot of this has to do with return on investment. But I'd say the larger majority has to do with these other elements of relationship building that transcend the investment. The key is that you have to find people, as you're alluding to, you have to find potential investors at very early stages, even if you just have an info interview. So, for example, if you're looking for a job, probably the worst way to look for a job is at least uh, 20 years ago, was to look through a newspaper, you see the classified ads, and you'd apply for a job. And and so I don't know what the return is on that investment, but it's so astronomically small, you wonder whether it's even worth sending out those letters. So if we know that that's the truth, then why would we do that in the startup community? Uh, So as an example, I will have people randomly connect with me on LinkedIn by email because they see the word investor on my profile and they'll say, I've got this great opportunity. You'd be crazy. I hear this all the time. You'd be crazy not to invest in it because we're so awesome. And that, you know, I, I hear that so often that it just doesn't, it doesn't phase me, but it's too late. It's just too late at that point. And so I'll very politely respond, which I think is really important as an investor because the alternative is just to ignore that message. And I don't, I, I think that there's an authenticity piece that needs to be respected. And that is, even if I just cut and paste something that I've written before, it says at the present moment, I'm not looking for uh, investments uh, in my, for my portfolio in the way in which you've just described. Uh, but I appreciate you reaching out to me. I think, I think that people need to realize that it's those early stages of just, again, looking for a job of having almost an inter- info interview. So one of the ways that I used to get uh, some of my earliest jobs in corporations, 
I would just reach out to people and say, hey, listen, can I have a 15, 20 minute conversation? So I did reach out to an HR department or if I knew if I knew someone who knew someone who, who knew someone at, at an organization, I'd say, hey, I, I just want 15 minutes of your time. I found that about eight times out of 10, people would say, yeah, I'll give you 15 minutes, but not a, not a second more. No problem. I do my research and then I just ask pointed questions. What that does is that it deeps, it starts a conversation. It deepens a, a engagement and it heightens the possibility that that person, if they're looking for someone as crazy as I am, that, that, that they'll at least give me an interview. And then from there, it's my responsibility to demonstrate my value. Why don't startups around here do that more actively? Than they do. And I know that there are startups that do. And I could ream off a couple of great examples of startups that are very savvy in this space, but I think that they're the very small minority. So my point is that we need to start to shift the conversation at the startup level about what it is to be an investor and how best to engage with them. Uh, I, you'd be amazed how many people I think around here and many other places in the world that still watch Dragon's Den and Shark Tank, and they think that that is somehow a, a, an educational experience, <laughs> and it's not. That is entertainment. First and foremost, that is entertainment. We don't see all the layers behind the scenes that go up to that one performance. And I'm not suggesting that that all the sharks there are um, are dysfunctional. I think that there are some very good individuals there of high net worth that that really do give back in ways that I think are important. But at the end of the day, do not look at Shark Tank and Dragon's Den and think that that is the way in which the investor world works, because I don't believe it is. I'd agree with you there. Um, I think that's probably a, a, a absolutely brilliant way to end the show. Uh, so thank you, uh, Nicholas, for joining me today oh, my on, pleasure. The, Thanks for on the me. podcast. And um, I'm sure that uh, this is going to be a great episode for a lot of people to hear some, you know, some hard nosed uh, uh, in advice about the way they should start focusing both from the investor side and from the startup side. But in addition to that, I think it, it will give people who are already involved with the rainforest and maybe who haven't quite thrown their hat in yet to, to realize what needs to be done to make things happen at a more uh, cohesive way. And uh, I yeah. really, I want to thank you for that. I think your, your advice is, is quite brilliant. And, and, and I appreciate that. I, I think that it's, it's been an interesting series of reconnaissance missions for me here. I'll be around until next week. But this is my third reconnaissance mission in Calgary. And during that time, it's just been a real gift to spend uh, countless hours with so many different individuals, everything from investors with very high net worths down to folks that are uh, in their early 20s and just trying to delve into this notion of what they think is their entrepreneurial experience. And I think part of the answer here for me has been this sense of deep listening spent a lot of time listening to what people consider to be their pain points. And I think I, I now have a lot of suggestions and recommendations for this, the ecosystem here. And I, I'd, I'd love to find ways to be able to further engage with those who'd like to engage so that we can more collaboratively build this. Because at the end of the day, what's most important, and I think all of us can agree, is that Calgary deserves to be not just on a national scale stage, but an international stage when it comes to the startup community. Right now, we're falling behind. We shouldn't. There's no excuse for Calgary not to fall behind. 
The question is, what do we need to do to be able to accelerate the development so that we, in the short term, in the next two years, can compete with the likes of Toronto and Vancouver far more, and Waterloo, far more than we do right now, and then carry on that acceleration in a, in a way that allows us to be recognized internationally for some of the amazing work that we do. And I think a combination is to highlight some of the, the, the incredible success stories that already exist here, but also very actively find ways to collaborate, to build this infrastructure using the community that's so prevalent here in Calgary to get to where, again, this place really deserves to be. Mm-hmm. So that when we have economic uncertainty and we have the storms of, of one industry not performing the way that it, it has historically, this allows us to be able to weather those storms far more successfully than perhaps we have in the past. Brilliant. Well put. Thank you so much, Nicholas. I appreciate your time very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay. And best of luck to you guys at the Rainforest. Cheers. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-source, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social-barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode is sponsored by Capturing Legacies, because everyone has a story, and Capturing Legacies is here to help you tell it. Visit CapturingLegacies.com for more information. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.